coming up as the current Prime Minister prepares for some long-term chillaxing. The rivals to take over at number 10 are whittled down to two. The Conservative Party can come together and that under my leadership it will. As Jeremy Corbyn makes an appeal to his Labour MPs for unity. That's bound to work. Come together now. Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading the latest podcast, which comes to you at the end of another, at times, surreal week in Westminster. We thought that by now Boris Johnson would be well on the way to Downing Street. Then Michael Gove turned silent assassin, so surely he had put himself in the driving seat. Not so much as it turned out. Michael Gove, 46 votes. Andrea Leadsom, 84 votes. Theresa May, 199 votes. Michael Gove, having the lowest number of votes, has been eliminated from the ballot. As such, Theresa May and Andrea Leadsom will be put forward to the membership of the Conservative Party. So, it's goodbye, Mr Gove, and hello to the mysterious Andrea Leadsom. Six years in the House of Commons, not a single cabinet meeting, and a CV that may not be entirely accurate. By September, either she will be Prime Minister or it will be Theresa May. I'm delighted to have won so much support from my colleagues. I've won votes from Conservative MPs from across the party, from left and right, leavers and remainers, MPs from the length and breadth of the country. This vote shows that the Conservative Party can come together and that under my leadership it will. Well, as ever, uh, Robert Meakin joins me now. This was supposed to be Boris Johnson's job. And then Michael Gove stepped in and stabbed him in the back. So then it was Michael Gove's job. And now it's either Theresa May or Andrea Leadsom's job. There's been a long history of Tory leadership frontrunners coming a cropper all the way back to, you could say, Willie Whitelaw in the mid-1970s, think Michael Heseltine, think Michael Portillo, think Ken Clark, think David Davis. It's happened again and again and again, but possibly not in quite an extreme fashion as the last few days. As you said, it was. It seemed like it was Boris's to lose. We all know what happened then last week when Michael Gove plunged the dagger in. Theresa May has now emerged very much as that the son is the favourite amongst the parliamentary party. And there's one, Andrea Leadsom, who, let's be frank, most people had barely heard of before, who's now the only person in her way for number 10 Downing Street. You would have thought if there was one organisation in which treachery and backstabbing would, would provide a, a significant advancement, it would be the Conservative Party. But they appear to have rather taken against Michael Gove's actions. It's interesting, wasn't it? And, how, and I don't think we could quite call it when it first happened last week. When he made his spectacular move against Boris, it may have been a masterstroke. Maybe this was the big move. Maybe this was Gove emerging from behind the curtain and the, 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 the master plan was about to be executed. But no, it went the other way. It looked grubby and it looked deceitful. And it's interesting with someone like Michael Gove, who from sections of the party has been highly regarded for a long time as quite the master operator, but always sort of the sidekick, the accomplice. He's always had that sort of role. He's been admired for his, his vocal skills, his, his, his ability to dodge and weave and all the rest of it. But funnily enough, maybe a la Peter Mandelson, when he was actually brought out under the lights as the potential next prime minister, a lot of people suddenly thought, bloody hell, you're a bit weird. 
So what we do know is that whatever happens, the next prime minister is going to be a woman, a second uh, woman prime minister in the UK. So of the two candidates, one is a right wing Tory woman with what some people might see as slightly extreme views and the other one's Theresa May. Yes, it, it's interesting now that Theresa May is going to be pitched as the centrist, you know, more moderate candidate. It gives you some indication of how far things have swung in the Conservative Party for Theresa May to be the voice of moderation. Yeah, it's a funny old business when you think of her track record as Home Secretary in recent years. She, of course, now we'll see, look, we don't know at this stage if it will work, but so far she's played a what seems to be a fairly canny game that, you know, she, although she was technically Remain, she never made any noises about being part of Remain. She very much hedged her bets with clearly more than one eye on the resulting leadership contest. I think of May, to use a sort of rather dodgy sporting analogy, she's a bit like sort of an opening England cricketer, you know, cricket batsman, you know, and the sort of person who, uh, you know, you rely on not to make many mistakes, plays it safe, carves out a long innings, you know, or try to, and tries just not to make any sort of serious blunders. I wonder, I wonder how that will play out over the, um, the coming weeks and months, because I think... <laughs> May's got it all to lose at the moment. She's far ahead in terms of the MP's votes. And you imagine she's a very straight-laced character, to put it mildly, whether she's going to appear rather uptight and humourless and whether Ledson, by contrast, will be sort of portrayed as the more lively character who takes more chances. And maybe she, you know, maybe she can gain. At this point, we don't know. At this point, it could be that Ledson will just get swamped by this May juggernaut over the, over the coming weeks. But it looks like Ledson's in with a shout. Uh, Theresa May, as you say, is is very much being presented as the safe pair of hands. And it's possible that after, shall we say, a fairly traumatic period in politics, that people might want a bit of calm and steady leadership. And you can see the appeal there. But she's never been the most exciting of politicians. She's been pretty silent on anything outside of her home office brief. And she's been in that same job for six years Andrea Ledson, by contrast, nobody had heard of her three months ago, but a couple of uh, EU referendum debates and the departure of people like Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, suddenly she's up there and she's got down to the final two. But we've learned a few interesting things about her, these allegations that she's perhaps just polished her CV a little bit too much. Then things like she doesn't seem overly keen on employment rights for young workers in small companies and most recently announcing in an interview that she's still not really all that keen on gay marriage. And while some of those things won't go down well with a great many voters, you can't help thinking they're the kind of things that might go down well with the sort of people who would join the Conservative Party. Well, exactly. I mean, crucially, we have to remember, however strongly we may disagree with this fact, uh, 150,000 Tory members currently are going to choose not only our next Conservative leader, but our next prime minister. Think of the sort of makeup of the people who are actually conservative members rather than just conservative voters. And I'm not sure that would do Ledson that much harm to hold those sorts of opinions, to be honest. The majority of that party membership would have voted to leave the EU led some campaigns to leave the EU. As we said, May hedged her bets, but what you watch out, led some campaign team going to play that very, very hard. She is the Brexiteer in this argument. We're going to be hearing that again and again and again. And it is worth remembering that while Theresa May is a very long way ahead in the ballot of MPs, Ian Duncan Smith 
William Hague, David Cameron, they were all behind going into the final vote on the Tory leadership and they all came out in front. Being the front runner, as Boris Johnson can tell you, doesn't work out very well for people who want to lead the Tory party. There's one newspaper article where someone was talking about how they met this couple on holiday years and years ago. And uh, the, the woman, a lovely woman called Andrea, was working in the city, but said that she quite fancied having a go at politics. It's worked out quite well, really. Tony Blair looked defeated as he started his response to the Chilcot report. For all of this, I express more... Sorrow, regret, and apology that you may ever know or can believe. More than two and a half million words summarised in one phrase. Military action in Iraq might have been necessary at some point, but in March 2003, there was no imminent threat from Saddam Hussein. And while the former Prime Minister said he was more sorry than people would be able to imagine, as his two hours in the spotlight dragged on and the questions became more hostile, he became more and more insistent. He had made the right decision and the same situation would do it again. I can look not just the families of this country but the nation in the eye and say I did not mislead this country. I made the decision in good faith on the information I had at the time and I believe that it is better that we took that decision. There is one terrorist in this world that the world needs to be aware of, and his name is Tony Blair, the world's worst terrorist. Tony Blair has come out immediately and said, the Chilcot report, there are elements of it I don't agree with, but at the end of the day, it's cleared me of the suggestion I in some way deceived the nation. I did not do that, and there is no proof here that I did. All his critics are saying, well, we've seen the Chilcot report, and yes, it does say you deceive the nation. And in other words, the allegation is that you're deceiving us again. Yeah, so we're just stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so, you know, so and Blair, we know the line of argument which he will keep going with till the grave. He reluctantly admits that, that there were mistakes made with the intelligence, the way that was presented and understood. But then, of course, comes the key moment. Would I do it all again? Yes, I would. 179 British military personnel killed, 150,000 minimum Iraqi, uh, mostly civilians, killed a million Iraqis displaced, a report that runs to two and a half million words that can be summed up by saying Tony Blair got more or less everything wrong in the handling of this war. And he ends up by saying, I would do it all again. And what's extraordinary about this is that We said a couple of weeks ago that no matter what happens now, David Cameron will always be remembered as the man who took Britain out of the EU. And Tony Blair will always be remembered for Iraq. There is nothing he can do about it. And yet there is that vain streak again that all politicians seem to have. He's desperately trying to polish up his legacy, to try and change the way history will see him. And it's simply too late. People had made up their minds about Tony Blair and Iraq long before the Chilcot report was published. I don't think Chilcot will have changed a single mind. It's it's incredible and it's a remarkable, tragic story when you think of the the background, the euphoria with which Blair came in within 1997 when he pretty much single-handedly destroyed the Conservative Party for a generation. We're both old enough to remember the excitement 
at that time when Blair arrived on the scene, utterly overshadowed, utterly forgotten because of what happened with Iraq subsequently. Blair being the sort of person he is, I mean, he certainly doesn't go hiding, to be fair to him. I mean, he's still in his head. He's still plowing his face through, trying to reverse this awful legacy he's got somehow. Where Tony Blair goes from here, having observed him for years, one thing I think that gets rather neglected is that Blair's faith, whatever you think, Blair considers himself to be a deeply Christian man. And he has that sort of religious zeal about him. It was almost like he was the martyred king in some sort of way, misunderstood by the masses, but still ploughing on, still pursuing the same course. Now, we were told that Jeremy Corbyn was hanging on as Labour leader so he could tear into Tony Blair once the Chilcot report was published. And while he was pretty critical in the Commons, he didn't mention Tony Blair's name once. Diane Abbott, one of the few loyal lieutenants he has left, said it was because Jeremy doesn't go in for the politics of personal attacks. Then again, he doesn't need to because he has momentum to do it for him. So here we are, nearly two weeks after the mass resignations from the Shadow Cabinet that kick-started the coup against him, and Mr Corbyn remains the Labour leader, and perhaps more in hope than expectation, appealing for unity in a message released via Twitter. I want to reach out to all our members, to all our supporters, to all our trade union affiliates, and to my colleagues in Parliament, come together now to oppose this Tory government. Presumably Labour will now just stagger on to the recess later this month with a leader in place that the vast majority of the party's MPs don't want and and it's beginning to feel like the leadership challenge is probably on hold, you know, maybe until the autumn. Yeah, it's a pathetic shambles that, that we've seen. And uh, I mean, it, it was you could call it the night of the blunt knives, I think, really, with the Labour Party. The night of the plastic spoons yeah. for all of the effectiveness it had. Unlike the Conservative Party, as we've said before, do political assassinations very quickly and very brutally. Just watch Michael Gove last week, for instance. The, the, the Labour Party, it's a very protracted, dramatic affair where, you know, resentments simmer for months and months and years before sort of action gets taken. Think of Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, for goodness sake. This is the worst example of all where you've, you've seen the parliamentary party desperately trying to find an excuse to get rid of a man they never wanted as leader, but they are stuck because the membership, the people who are paid members of the party, it seems, as of right now, would want Jeremy Corbyn back in as leader, so they are trapped. It's, it's fascinating to watch and pathetic to watch on one level. There's also, just when you step aside and you're impartial about it, it's something to get quite angry about because at the moment we're in a situation where we're a Conservative Prime Minister was elected 13 months ago. He's off. He's gone by September. So we have a new Conservative Prime Minister chosen by 150,000 party members, potentially remaining in office till 2020. And alongside that, we've got nothing resembling a credible opposition. It is extraordinary that having you know marched up the hill launched this challenge, 60 resignations, 172 votes of no confidence from the MPs. And then uh, they just seem to have assumed that that somehow would would force him out. And when that happens, he'll have to go. And so when he just stands there and refuses to go, there's not a single one of them that is willing to take the next step that is that is willing to do anything that might actually force him out and while on the one hand obviously that's because they're extremely concerned that the party membership would just vote him back in 
you have started down a road that seems, at least to me, to lead inevitably to either Jeremy Corbyn going or those Labour MPs splitting either into another group in Parliament or some sort of SDP thing off into another party of some description. But you have to make a decision to do one or the other. And if you're incapable of making that decision... How on earth do you expect to convince millions of people that you're capable of leading the country? Indeed, and yeah, unless there's that, that rather mystical sort of moderate Labour supporting revolution where all the moderate Labour voters join the party tomorrow and take, effectively take over the membership, there seems no prospect of Corbyn or someone with similar political views not being the Labour leader in, in the immediate uh, you know, future into the next few months. Where... I, the Labour Party, the, the moderate side of the Labour Party, they, they, you, you see the prominent figures. They haven't emotionally come to terms with the idea that there might have to be a different party. You just look at someone like Tessa Jowell or like someone like Gordon Brown, even Chukra Muna. They, they, can't, they can't contemplate the idea that the Labour Party might not be theirs anymore. The brutal fact is it isn't. You, you, we, we, can, we can talk about it being taken over by a sect, a cult, whatever it is, but the Labour Party is currently run by Jeremy Corbyn and that core group of people. Those other people, the left of centre, the centrist sort of members, they've lost that party presently. They have no say and they are trapped. And at some point, I do think they do have to step up and really consider, do we create a new Labour Party? I don't. As, and it's an incredibly risky proposition for them. But they might have to do that at some point. Or do they wait for Jeremy Corbyn to drop off his perch one day? So the opposition party is led by somebody who most of his MPs have absolutely no desire to work for. I don't honestly know who is running the country at the moment. If anyone sees David Cameron, if they could remind him that he is still technically in charge of the country until September, it would be quite nice to see him. He appears to have decided to spend the last few months on gardening leave or chillaxing or something. Anyway, we will leave it there. Uh, Robert, thank you very much. Do get in touch on uh, on the Twitter at uh, Paul Osborne. Thank you for listening. And for now, goodbye. 